I want you to go to 1 John chapter 3 with me once more. 1 John chapter 3. I do want to continue on in our study through uh, the book of 1 John. And we're roughly halfway through uh, this New Testament epistle that we've really been in the study of since early October. And so much of what John writes in 1 John has to do with this issue of assurance, knowing for sure that we are in the faith. John wants believers to be confident that they are saved. And it's interesting, this passage in 1 John chapter 3, which we began looking at last week, John is affirming the truth that believers are born of God and they are God's children. And that's something that he wants believers to be confident of. And yet within this third chapter, he explains to his readers that being a child of God is incompatible with the practice of sin. Now, it's somewhat ironic that from a book of the Bible, which is intended to provide believers with a sense of assurance that so much confusion has abounded, especially with reference to chapter 3, because some have taken John's words and misunderstood the point that he's making when he says that no one who's born of God sins. Uh, is that to mean that, does that mean that the Christian is someone who is perfect and cannot sin? And if I sin, then that must mean that I'm not a Christian? Is that what John is saying here in this passage? Well, not at all. Uh, what John is saying in this passage that we're looking at is that a person who has truly been born of God will not habitually practice sin. That is, there's been a change of life. Uh, old patterns of sin have been broken by the power of the gospel. And John's already established the fact that Christians can sin. Uh, he has said as much back in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 when he has called upon us to confess our sin knowing that God is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's dealing with a group of people who had come out of the churches of Asia Minor, known as the Gnostics, who were false teachers, who were spreading lies and misinformation about the, the person of Jesus Christ, but they were also spreading lies about the nature of the Christian life itself. And, and it's really these individuals that John is addressing, and he's saying a true Christian will not be someone who justifies sin or tries to make an excuse for sin or practices sin uh, as a habitual lifestyle. So you're there in 1 John chapter 3. Let's begin reading with verse number 4. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that is Christ, Christ appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I want to stop there. I want to continue speaking along this subject, the reason that the Son of God appeared. In this passage of Scripture, John explains for his readers just why exactly Christ came. And it's interesting, in the first part of chapter 3, he deals with the second coming and the appearing of Christ one of these days when he returns and the fact that believers were going to be like him, were going to see him as he is in all of his glory. Someone says, well, what does the future hold for the child of God? It's glorification at the second coming of Jesus Christ when we're going to be made like him in every way. Perfect. But it's almost as if John is working backwards here in this text. And and, uh, he's saying the reason that Christ appeared to begin with in his first appearing, in his first coming, John says really there's a threefold reason. And the first reason I gave uh, last week, um, the Son of God came, first of all, to deliver us from the grip of sin. And this is something that the apostle is saying here in verses 4, 5, and 6. Christ came to deliver us from the power of sin. And so if I've been delivered from sin, how would I ever seek to justify that which Christ stands in opposition of? If he is my Lord as a believer then that means that I'm not going to try to justify that which he is so clearly against, that which he came to suffer, bleed, and die for on the cross. Jesus came to deliver us from the grip of sin. And so John is really clear as to what man's number one problem is. Man is alienated from God, and so one of the first things we need to understand in gospel ministry is that sin is fundamental to human nature. So John establishes this universal fact there in verse 4. Notice he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. It should remind us, honestly, that sin is an issue with everyone. Uh, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. Someone says, well, define sin. Well, sin is that which is opposed to God's will, uh, as that which Uh, reflects his character, the will that God has expressed and revealed in his commands. Sin is in opposition to that. I'll never forget the definition from the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism that I memorized when I was young. I still remember this definition to this day. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, I'm going to ask you that when the service is over, and there's going to be a test, so you Repeat that back. No, sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is lack of conformity to the law of God. And that's what John is saying here in verse 4 when he says that sin is lawlessness. And this is the primary disposition of a sinner where a person argues against God's law because that person wants to go his own way. This is the default position of humanity in sin. And lost humanity is blind to this fact. 
Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. And this really sets up the situation for what's wrong with the entire world. Sin and the results of sin are catastrophic because sin has wreaked havoc on our relationship with God. Man who's been made in the image of God now is alienated from God, alienated from his maker. And then there's alienation even in terms of human relationships because sin wreaks havoc on human relationships. Every human problem that exists between people ultimately comes from sin. And sin has stirred up chaos at every human level, whether it be in a marriage or among coworkers, or whether it be among nations, and we're seeing that being played out even today. So there's this universal fact established in verse 4, and then there's a fundamental truth explained in verse 5. Listen to this. John says, you know that he appeared to take away sins. Why did the Son of God appear? John says in verse 5, it was to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The sinless Son of God appeared so that he could deal with the sin problem. Christ came for this specific purpose, and that purpose was to take away sins. That phrase, take away there, uh, translates a word that means to bear up. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was only by means of his death in the place of sinners that Christ could take away sins. And he could only do this because of who he was. He alone is qualified to be our sin bearer because John says that in him is no sin. He was sinless, a spotless, perfect lamb of God prepared for this specific purpose to take away sins. So you've got this universal fact and this fundamental truth. And in verse 6, there's this logical conclusion that's expressed. Listen to this. John says, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So follow his logic here in the text. For someone to make an excuse for sin or justify sin reveals the fact that they've never truly come to know Christ in his redemptive power and his redemptive grace. For a person to minimize sin, John says this person uh, really shows that they, they fail to understand the cross They fail to understand the purpose of redemptive grace. John is saying that your life will be very different as a result of knowing Christ. And what he says in these verses, he's not saying that you're going to be perfect in this life because we know that we stumble and fall. But when we stumble and fall in the Christian life, it's always we stumble forward. And we know that when we sin, the Holy Spirit who lives within us as believers convicts us of sin so that we can confess it. And we want to be like Christ, and that's the cry of the believer's heart. And we know that God is using the circumstances of this life and the happenings of this life and the good, the bad, the ugly, even the choices that we've made that had very painful consequences. We can trust that part of God's purpose for our lives is that he's using all of that, weaving all of that together into a beautiful tapestry of grace as he's conforming us into the image of his Son. So the reason that the Son of God appeared was to deliver us from the grip of sin. That's the first reason in this passage. Now I want you to see a second reason with me there in verse number 7 and 8. 
The reason the Son of God appeared, John says, was to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to do away with sin, to take away sins. But now along these same lines, he's saying in verse 8 that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil in whom sin ultimately finds its origin. And you'll notice there in verse 7 that once more he begins with this phrase, little children. And we've seen this before, but this is just a compassionate, tender way that the Apostle John is speaking to his spiritual children, and he's passionate that they know and understand this truth, that their sin has found its answer in Christ, and that real belief manifests itself in righteous behavior. So he's affectionately and tenderly issuing this warning. He says, let no one deceive you. And the old apostle knew all too well that those deceivers who were out and about were spreading false ideas about Christ. He's dealt with this back in the second chapter. But they're also spreading false ideas about the nature of the Christian life itself. And one of their goals had been to persuade people that a righteous life was not really all that important. These antichrists, uh, John says that They're antichrists. He calls them that back in chapter 2. They had been saying that a person's lifestyle ultimately had no relationship to the condition of their soul. These Gnostics uh, who who had bought into this dualistic way of thinking that said ultimately the body is just a prison for the soul anyway, so as long as things are right with your soul, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And we know that there are multiple places in the New Testament where the writers of the New Testament were confronting these false ideas. And John is one of those who's confronting these false ideas. So notice how he expresses it in verse 7. He says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So he's working backwards from fruit to root, from what is practiced to what is truly possessed. And so really in this passage, he's sort of juxtaposing the two practices. There's the practice of sin, and there's the practice of righteousness. You know what juxtapose means? To juxtapose something is to place it side by side with something else and to show a contrast. So there's this juxtaposition between the practice of sin and the practice of righteousness. And John is saying the one who's practicing righteousness This is merely an expression of the fact that positionally they've come to know Jesus Christ and possess his righteousness. And so John is making this point that doing ultimately is the test of being. Not that doing so much makes me a Christian. We know that that's not the gospel. We're declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But when you have been declared righteous and you come to possess the righteousness of Christ, the test that you've truly come to know him and possess his righteousness will be the practice of that righteousness outwardly in your life. It will lead to a life change. Who I am in position will express itself by way of my practice. And that's what John is saying here. And if that's true, then what does it say about the practice of sin, the one who habitually practices sin? Well, John is 
pulling no punches here. He is clear when he says the one who practices sin, the one who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. (laughs) So really notice in the text here that he deals with the activity of the devil and ultimately the accomplishments of Christ. Notice what he says about the activity of the devil though. Which, by the way, there's this repetitive pattern throughout 1 John. John writes, in many ways, what he writes is sort of like a spiral staircase. He keeps coming back to some of the same arguments that he's made in order to reinforce his point. So, verse 8 begins with this dramatic statement, He who sins is of the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And someone says, well, man, that sounds harsh, especially coming from the Apostle John, the Apostle of love. But keep in mind, this is the same language that Jesus used in the 8th chapter of John in reference to the Pharisees. Remember how the Pharisees were so proud that Abraham was their father? They were proud of their ethnic heritage. They were proud of their position in Abraham. And Jesus said to them, well, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. And then Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks, uh, he speaks lies out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So John is using the same language of Jesus. And it was to these religious, smug, self-righteous Pharisees who were putting all of their accomplishments in their religious deeds as, as, as the means of their goodness rather than the imputed righteousness that comes through faith. Jesus is saying, listen, you are of the devil. Ultimately, you belong to the devil. Now, folks, listen to me. Oh, this is, you better be careful. Listen to me. Don't misquote me when I say this. Have you ever heard everybody use this line of logic? Well, we're all God's children in reference to humanity. Listen, we're all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. Because God's children are those who have been born again into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have really two families, two seeds, diametrically opposed to one another. You've got the seed of the serpent and you've got the seed of the woman. You've got the family of God and you've got the family of the wicked one. But the good news is that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The good news is that the Son of God appeared having invaded enemy territory to take the spoils for himself. And that is the good news of the gospel. So if the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, what are the works of the devil that John is referring to here? Let me just camp out on that phrase for just a moment or two, the works of the devil. I think ultimately the works of the devil fall into three main categories. The first category is that of deception. The evil activity of the devil can be traced all the way back to the beginning when it was the devil who introduced sin to our first parents. When God created the world, God looked at everything that he made. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was perfect. It was good until the serpent deceived Eve. 
And it was good until the serpent enticed man to sin against God. And so this then is the explanation of evil and sin and all of our miseries common to humanity. Man went against God, and the result of that is that the state of this world, it is what it is and has been what it is since the moment that man fell. The reason that there's chaos and the reason that there's violence and the reason that there's sin and evil and injustice and all of this, it stems from the fact that the whole world is under the influence of the evil one. And we know that the Scripture reveal, uh, unveil, rather, the personality behind the serpent who was there in Genesis 3. It's none other than Satan. None other than the wicked one. None other than the one who wants to deceive and keep people under a cloud of deception, keep them blind to the reality of their sin and their need. I don't have time to get into all the history of this, but you can read Isaiah 14 and talk about the fall of Lucifer. Somehow, Israel's prophets give us a glimpse of some cosmic conflict that even goes back far beyond the events of Eden itself into a long war against God involving the angel Lucifer who rebels against God because he's lifted up with pride. Isaiah 14 describes this. Ezekiel 28 describes the same thing. But ultimately, Satan's evil character is formed the moment that he let his pride lead him to rise up in rebellion against the throne of God. And here you have this angelic being who went from being a beautiful creature who lived in the light of heaven to a fallen creature of darkness. Jesus said in Luke 10 that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now he's Satan. That word means adversary. He's one who opposes. He's one who's under the curse of God, one who went from being a shining one to an adversary who deceives the world and wants to keep the world from the light of truth. And the Bible has a variety of names for our enemy. Satan is the one that we're most familiar with. John refers to him here as the devil. That Greek word means accuser or slanderer. The name Satan shows up around 35 times in the New Testament. Devil is used around 60 times in the New Testament. And that's a fitting description of who he is and what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. His character as accuser is on full display in the first two chapters of Job. Uh, You've got other descriptions. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's referred to as the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2 refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. He's the main influencer behind this present world system. The world of fallen humanity is under his evil influence. It was through his influence, man sins against God, plunged humanity into sin and death. It was under his influence that Cain rose up to murder his brother Abel. John is going to say this much down in verse number 12. Through the evil influence of Satan, the world hates the truth of God. The devil's a destroyer who wants to undermine God's purpose. And so deception, this is his his chief work. He operates in the realm of deceit, deception, lies, and he wants to keep humanity blinded to the truth. 
A second category of the works of the devil is that of dominion. Not simply deception, but dominion. Why is it that he wants to deceive and keep people deceived? Well, it's because through the fall, Adam's world became the kingdom and domain of the devil. Men and women are in the bondage to sin and sin's consequences, and Satan wants to keep people in that bondage. And yet Christ came into this world to conquer the devil, to overcome his kingdom, and set up his own kingdom. And so here's what you have. You have the devil engaged in this contest against God for the souls of men and women. And the enemy works to keep people blind to their sin and their need of God's grace. The enemy wants to keep people away from the truth. By the way, the Apostle Paul knew exactly what his calling was as a missionary and as a gospel witness. He said that Christ had commissioned him in order to open blinded eyes, that men may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, the commission that you and I have been given as believers It's a supernatural commission that requires a supernatural power because the minds of humanity are blinded to the reality of sin and death and their need for God's grace. And we need the power of Christ and we need the convicting work of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel and the truth of God's word. That's what God does. He opens blinded eyes. Christ has come to set the captive free. And so is it any reason why the enemy wants to counterfeit God's system of truth and introduce lies so that he can keep people? Listen, it's not just, it's not just atheism that he promotes, but he, he, he promotes religion of works. He has no problem with humanity being religious so long as humanity's religion keeps them away from grace. He has no problem promoting a system of self-righteousness and Phariseeism and all of that. He has no problem with a libertine way of living so long as it blinds people to the nature of sin and alienation from God. So you see how he works? So what are these works of the devil but deception, dominion, and then ultimately death? What's the devil's end game? Why is it that he deceives? Why is it that he wants to maintain dominion? It's so that he can keep people in bondage to death. Sin imprisons lost humanity in this domain of darkness under the rule of the wicked one, and the effects of sin are far-reaching. The Scripture says the soul that sins, it shall die. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. That's the awful news that we can't avoid. And all throughout human history, the devil has held as a trump card this fact that man, that God declared man die because of his sin. That's been the enemy's trump card. That's why Hebrews chapter 2 says that he's the one who's had the power of death. The devil has had the power of death to hold people in bondage to the fear of death, and that way he can hold them in lifelong slavery. And yet John is saying here, though, in 1 John 3, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that passage in Hebrews says that Christ has appeared as one who's come victorious, uh, the one to destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
So what are the works of the devil? Deception, dominion, death. John goes on in chapter 5 to talk about how the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And if the whole world is under his sinister control, then listen, where is the battle to be waged? When you consider what John is saying here, I think it really frames the battle in its proper context. We don't wage battle in the political sphere because the ultimate hope for humanity is not a political hope. We don't wage war in the cultural sphere because the, ult- the ultimate hope for humanity is not a cultural hope. It's the spiritual sphere in which we wage war. <laughs> That's why Ephesians 6 says that the people of God need to be armored up. And we're to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemes of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The enemy's not so much flesh and blood. The enemy is the wicked one who's blinded fallen humanity. And so when you understand that those who seem to be the most vocally opposed to the truth of God's Word. When you understand what John is saying here, it helps you see how their real issue is spiritual in nature, and the evil one has them blinded to the truth. And that frees us up to see the enemy for who he is, and so that we can willingly give of ourselves in selfless, compassionate ministry and proclamation of the truth recognizing that the reason the Son of God appeared in the first place was to deliver men from the grip of sin, but to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Paul tells Timothy, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. (laughs) You get in the flesh as the Lord's servant, it's easy to want to be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. Do you see what Paul is saying there to Timothy? He said, Timothy, the, the battle is spiritual in nature. And you can't fight a spiritual battle with worldly weaponry. And that's just like the enemy, to want to confuse us as to where the battlefield really is and what type of weapons we're to use once we're engaged in that conflict. So here you have the church arguing about all kinds of stuff, all the while the enemy is is having a heyday because he's duped the church into fighting on the wrong battlefield with the wrong weapons. And here John is saying, what is it that the Son of God came to do but to destroy the works of the devil? And he's explaining the gospel and the nature of gospel ministry and the fact that our gospel is a proclamation. It's not just a principle. This is a proclamation. This is the victorious power of God over the devil. It is this message of the death and the resurrection of the Son of God by which he has defeated the one who's had the power of death. Which is why as the church, when we fight, we don't fight for victory. We are fighting from a place of victory because that victory has already been secured for us by the Lord Jesus. So you've got the activity of the devil, and then that's followed up by the accomplishment of the Son. For what reason has the Son of God appeared? Well, he's come to destroy 
the works of the devil. Which means that the devil is a defeated foe. You see, in the chaos that resulted from sin and the fallout of sin, there was an ancient promise that was given to our first parents, and that ancient promise is this, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And the whole of redemptive history flows out of that promise. The whole story of the Bible flows out of that promise, how God has been faithful to keep that promise. And what is the cross of the Lord Jesus but God keeping that promise as the seed of the woman, the Son of God who's appeared to destroy the works of the devil because it was at the cross and through the resurrection that the Son of God cut the head off of the snake. (laughs) Are y'all all right this morning? Man, So here's the thing. It was not through this display of strength in terms of the world's strength that the Son of God overcame, but he overcame by means of his own incarnation and death on a cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the incarnation undoes the lie of Satan, for if it tells us one thing more than anything else, it's that God is love and that God has loved us with an everlasting love. It goes all against all that the devil would have you and I to believe. Wasn't that the original lie introduced to Eve? God's not loving. God's holding out on you. And that's ultimately the lie that he keeps humanity deceived by. But the incarnation is proof positive that God has loved us with an everlasting love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The reason the son of God appeared in perfect love was to destroy the works of the devil. His sinless life undoes the work of the devil. You read the gospels and you see Jesus performing miracle after miracle. What do those miracles testify to but his power over the evil one? What is it that he's doing when he's causing the blind to see again or the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, when he's healing people who've been held in the grip of some bondage? What is he doing but reversing the effects of the fall and undoing the works of the devil? (laughs) And one day all of humanity itself and all of creation itself is going to be made new and there's not going to be any more cancer and there's not going to be any more blindness and there's not going to be any more hey I won't need these anymore in the resurrection why because the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and that's just good news isn't it I'm telling you that's good news my time is gone let's stand for prayer this morning The Son of God became flesh and entered our world on a divine search and destroy mission. He came to raid the devil's domain and rescue prisoners all while short-circuiting the enemy's communication lines. And let me tell you something. The cross is a well-placed bomb that obliterated enemy headquarters. (laughs) The reason that the Son of God appeared... He's come to deliver me from the grip of sin. He's come to destroy the works of the devil. And John's going to go on and say something else. He's going to say he's come to distinguish the true children of God. And there's a distinction between those who are the children of the devil and the children of God. And what's that distinction? Listen to me. The distinction is 
John says, you do your father's bidding. And so there's this principle then that doing ultimately is the test of being. Evidence that a person has been born again into the family of God will be this habitual practice of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but this really helps me see the mission that God's left me with in its proper light. It helps me see that humanity is ultimately blind and lost and in the dark. And this is why prayer is so critical in evangelism. This is why selfless service is so critical in evangelism because this is what gives the world a taste of something that's otherworldly. We need God to open blinded eyes. But you see, as we share the gospel, the power of God is the gospel itself, and it's a proclamation. It's the message of what the Son of God came to do. And if you know that message, if you've been set free from the bondage of sin and you've been liberated, you've got a story to tell. Would you bow with me this morning? Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you that the Son of God came to deliver us from the grip of sin And the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And that means as the church, Lord, we're not fighting for victory, but we're fighting from a place of victory. And as long as you've left us here in the world, we've got a mission. There's a message to be proclaimed. There's a mission for us to be about. And Lord, may we be about that mission while we have time and while we have opportunity. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.